invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, though we'll start in the verse before the chapter, 1 Kings chapter 19, and we'll begin back in verse 45 of chapter 18. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away, went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. He girded up his loins, ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And Ahab told Jezebel all Elijah had done, also how he had ex executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he rose and ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that as we look to the word of God today, your strength, your word, your comfort, your encouragement, your challenge, and yes, your conviction would rest upon us. And I pray that we will honor you as we learn from the word of God together today by being obedient to its call, to its lessons. And I pray, Father, that you will strengthen us. If we think we stand, I pray that we will take heed lest we fall. If our hearts have been broken down, I pray that we will see that it is not an unusual thing for human beings to struggle with human challenges because we're not perf perfected yet. And Father, may we be in awe of the Son of God who never failed. Teach us, Father, to grow in likeness to your precious Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but looking at our text of Scripture, it is a huge change to go from the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal and the victory of the fire coming down from heaven and licking up the, the sacrifice and licking up the, the sticks and licking up the stones and licking up the water and licking up the dust and the people turning around and saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then you have a little quietness as Elijah goes to prayer, and you find the, the, the wisp of a cloud begin to form out on the ocean. And so he tells Ahab, get going. You don't want to be caught in the rain, because the rain is coming. God shut the clouds off from the land so that it dried up for three and a half years because Elijah prayed. Then Elijah prays again, and God sends the rain in torrential downpours. And then we come to this little evil woman named Jezebel, and Elijah crumbles. What happened? What happened? How did that happen? I will say this, that, you know, there's a lot of temptations to one of us um, Neanderthals born in the 50s, you know. Well, you know what it is with women and how men just have to be on guard. I could say that, but I won't, but I did. I understand, too, that we have the challenges in our world, too, where there's some things that are just politically incorrect. But you have to go to the Word and say, what is God teaching us? It's not that women are all evil. But you also recognize that there can be pretty evil male women around you, too, so to speak. You know, Spurgeon used to talk about uh, cranky old women that, were, um, that would gossip and they were old women of both sexes. 
And so there is some truth to the idea that you can have a bad boss who's both a, male, a man or a woman. You can have a bad circumstance with a, a teacher, male or a female. You can have all kinds of circumstances, a good neighbor or a bad neighbor that's male or female. Uh, what's interesting here is that Elijah, the prophet of God, the one who stands before the Lord, couldn't stand before a woman. So us men will sit back and say, how dare he? And yet a lot of us will sit back and say, yeah, that's, that's a challenge too. It's not that a woman cannot be reasoned with. It's the reality that evil can't be reasoned with. That's what we're going to be learning here. And so, and obviously, Jezebel was an awful woman. She was evil incarnate, so to speak. Ahab was bad. He was evil too. But he was weaker than she was. There's a number of reasons for that. We'll try to, to set up for you a little bit of a perspective. But I want to start with this before we go through the text. Notice verse 3. When he saw, when he saw that, when he saw. It's interesting that there are some Bibles today that will put in there, and he feared. Because there's a similarity in the Hebrew language between the word fear and the word saw. But the Masoretic text, which would be the one that we would lean to with the, the most scholarship, would say saw. And so if your Bible doesn't have that word, it has the word fear, yeah, he was afraid. No problem about it. So you don't need to throw your Bible away. However, understand that because there's a similarity in words, some have leaned towards the fear because that's what he did. But what I think it does with the word saw is it tells you the hinge of the entire text. It tells you what led to his activity. And believers, you may not admit fear sometimes, but there are things you see that may cause you to do what Elijah did. And so it's worthwhile taking the time to see what he saw. I know you know those poems. You know, he, the blind man picked up his hammer and saw. The idea here is to see what Elijah saw. And understand what Elijah saw and why he then ran. And I would encourage you believers to understand that this is a very difficult text. I am, when I was going through it and studying it and thinking about how to preach this, I, you know, I began thinking, first of all, Lord, this is humbling for me. This is a challenge for any one of us, men and women. And then you begin to think, well, you know, I can, I can see how this is such a, this can be yet an incredible blessing for you out here in my, my hearing audience, my congregation, the, the body of Christ. Because there are ways in which we, as we grow in Christ, will feel like we're doing all right, and yet we'll back up and really fail where our strength was. And yet we're not alone in that. Think in terms of Abraham. Abraham was known as a man of faith. He was a friend of God, right? And what did he do when he went to Egypt? He lied. Where he was strong, he failed. Samson, where he was strong, he failed. Think of others. David, he was, he was a man after God's own heart, but what happened to his heart? He went after the uh, wrong object. He failed where his strength was. Elijah, the man who stands before God, the Lord before whom I stand, turns around and can't stand in front of a woman. 24 hours, you're a dead man. It's interesting, and this is true for all of us. We need to be prepared to understand that where the Lord has worked in our hearts and made us strong is often the place where Satan's going to work his hardest to destroy you. And because we think we have that covered, 
We have grown enough in that area. We need to concentrate on something else. Often we fail right where we think we stood. And that is not a good thing. It's a human thing. It's human in all of us. Job was tested in the integrity of his heart, wasn't he? And yet he was in, had integrity. He was a man of integrity. And yet God had to humble his heart too. Look at Peter. Peter was one of great courage. We know that from not only church tradition, but what he did after uh, the Lord was resurrected. How he did say, Lord, let me walk to you. Out when the waves were coming and thrashing about. Took his eyes off Christ and that's where he failed. Where you're strong, you need to be careful. We need to be reminded of that. And Elijah is one just like this. There are other things that are just a fascinating study in this text. I mean, if, if God had done this great, began this great revival back in verse, uh, back at the end of 40, back in verse 40 and before, where people just cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. If Elijah had stood instead of running, can you imagine what God might have done to, to Israel? I don't know. If he had stayed and had faced down Jezebel, what would it have been? The 7,000 men would have raised, risen up and said enough. Could God have continued that work, but instead Elijah runs and 40 days later, as the rest of the story goes, he's at Mount Sinai. What was going on in those 40 days? Now, Elisha wasn't concerned. Elisha was faithful. Those faithful ones were faithful. But can you imagine what God might have done if Elijah had stood before the queen? That's just suspicion. You know, God knew what would take place. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what his plan was, and so he certainly was not surprised by Elijah's response. But it is full of advice for you and for me. Jezebel was not just uh, a queen. She was much more than that. Jezebel was evil. And I, and I want to share with this with you. I, I wrote the salt and light this week, put it in the bulletin for you, and I hope moms and dads, you'll use it around your dinner table with the kids. A lot of times people are raised in a Christian home and they have no clue what evil looks like. And when it does hit them and they do realize it, it's like, where did that come from? How come this world is like that? There are some Bible lessons about evil, and I would encourage you to take the time and, and make it a bit of a family study uh, for the simple reason that it is important to use the word and identify it, use it as a label, because there are things that are evil, and our world doesn't let us do that much. I want you to take that in the concept of what's going on with Jezebel. She is, was an evil woman. No question about that, but she was a scary woman. If, if you wanted to label her besides evil, you would call her ferocious. That's a terrible word, isn't it, when you think about it? Something that's ferocious, you can't control it. It will lash out, it will tear you down, it will trample, tromp, trample you underfoot. It will tear you to bit, bits and pieces. That's who she was. She had destroyed the prophets of God. She had done everything she could to be the motivator behind Ahab, using him as a tool. She was born of royal blood. You know what that means. You know, if you're not royal and you stand in front of royalty, there are certain assumptions of how they want you to behave. And so simply because of their mane or because of their size or stature or position, you stand back in awe. And so you do obeisance to them. She was one of those types. She was born to royalty. And if you are evil, combining that with royalty, 
you have an awesome force. Can you imagine the way she would have badgered the courtiers around Ahab's court? Can you imagine the looks that she was able to command? Can you imagine the word and the tongue that she had that she was able to lash out? All you need to do is read about Naboth a little bit later on and see what kind of a person she was. She was vicious. She was ferocious. She was somebody not to be trifled with, and she was so good at it that she raised a daughter that married a king of Judah, and she continued the same course. Ahab didn't just fall into his evil more than any of the other kings before him, but he fell into it with help, and Jezebel was that help. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, we find the concept of Jezebel being talked about in Revelation chapter 2, where you have this seductress. You have this idea of somebody who is able to bring about immorality into the very warp and woof of what's around you. And so she is, she is almost personified evil. Evil is an awful thing. Evil comes from Satan. He is your enemy, your mortal enemy. And he will destroy you in any way he can, but for God's grace in protecting you. So she was evil. And because we know that, Elijah would certainly know what she was about. Now, I was under the assumption before I began jumping into chapter 19 that maybe she was there with Ahab. That's probably not true. She was there in Jezreel waiting for Ahab and wondering what was taking place. Go back with me, if you will, to verse 45. Now, it happened in the meantime, the sky became black and the clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Here's where we begin to see what Elijah saw. Elijah says the rain's coming. Get into your chariot and go. What did he see? There is no invitation to get in the chariot with Ahab. Which would have been a logical thing to do. Here's God's prophet. He's the one who's bringing rain. There, is, there has been this transformation among the people. And so wouldn't it be right for Ahab to say, come up into the chariot, let's go? Didn't happen. Elijah saw a lack of repentance in Ahab. Ahab was only concerned about his number one, which was him. It wasn't even about Jezebel, and as long as she was peaceful. He was only concerned about him. And so there he was in the chariot, and he's rushing ahead, rushing headlong back to Jezreel. And Elijah sees this. Now, God does an amazing thing. Verse 46, then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. Isn't it great in the scriptures to see that phrase? The hand of the Lord came upon God was going to do something miraculous, and it was miraculous, that Elijah ran before the chariot of Ahab. Now, a runner before a chariot is usually someone who is a servant, somebody who's got a position of respect, but he's a servant. He's still going to Jezreel. God leads him there. No question about that, because God enabled him, God strengthened him, and God took him to Jezreel, where Jezebel was, where Ahab was going. Ahab still did not say, come up into the chariot like the Ethiopian eunuch did with Philip. No, he let him run ahead of him, which was what a courier would do to say, prepare the way for the king. But superhuman strength to run ahead of a chariot. Can you imagine this? God did this. Of course, Elijah girded up his loins. There are all kinds of great illustrations of that because believers, we're to serve God too, no matter how humbling it is. Even if you have to work for someone named Ahab, in your mind, you may not be named that in, uh, at work. 
you, you know that there is a role that you play and there is honor that goes to a position. And so here's Elijah. He's going, okay, I'll be a servant. I'll run ahead. I'm the prophet, but I'm going to serve anyway. Uh, just as an aside, I hope it's grieving you, believers, that in our country, our news media, our politicians are using the terminology, the prophet Muhammad. Really? You know, if you just say Muhammad, everybody understands who you're talking about. Why are we doing that when we can't say the Lord Jesus Christ in the news media or our politicians? Let it grieve your heart. What did this prophet do? He ran in front of an ungodly king. And he did it because that's what God enabled him to do. And believers, you have a responsibility to those who have a higher rank than you. It's not always easy. But if God's put you there, God will enable you to do what you need to do in order to honor him. Be faithful. So Elijah didn't just say, oh, Lord, do I have to run? No, he got his, got his garment that would have gotten in his way of his legs. He got it up around his waist so that he could run. And he ran ahead of that chariot. Then he went to the capital. What was God going to do? I don't know. I can't wait. And he arrives at the capital with Ahab. In chapter 19, verse 1, and Ahab told Jezebel. There's something missing in there, we'd think. What did they do? Just arrive at the gate of the Jezreel, and Ahab said, I'll see you in a few minutes. See you tomorrow. I I've just got to go report. So Elijah just goes and expects news, an invitation to the palace, perhaps. I don't know what he was expecting, but I would assume that he's seeing things. There is no, Elijah, come with me right now. Explain what God has done. Tell Jezebel that she needs to be humbling herself before God. There is none of that. There's no report to the, to the court. Elijah's just left, apparently at the gate. And there he was. What did he see? An unrepentant Ahab. He's back to the capital, probably before all the crowd. So these are not the repentant people around him. These are people who have yet to repent. And there's Jezebel, this evil woman, who's just waiting to hear the news. Now, what happens when an unsaved person shares what God has done? They don't do well doing that, do they? Because there's no glory given to God. You can't see him. So what does Ahab say? Ahab gives this report, and I'm sure that this filtered back to Elijah somehow. Ahab told Jezebel all that God had done? Nah. Nope. All that Elijah did. Isn't that the way the world works? When God does something in a believer's heart and it's a miraculous thing, the believer says, wow, look what God has done. And the world says, boy, did you get healed. Or were you protected? How lucky you were. Yeah, God must have been there somewhere. But, you know, look at what happened. And we talk about the events. And that's what Ahab does. He does not focus on God. And so Jezebel hears what she wants to hear. Here's my enemy, Elijah. There's no humbling in her heart either. Instead, there is just this fuming buildup of ferocious wrath that can't wait to get her claws into Elijah. That is the way the world works. God does something. The world can't touch God, but they can touch you. And so they seek to reach out to someone within their grasp, someone that they can get a hold of. All that Elijah had done. 
Well, what did Elijah do? Well, Elijah was up there and he put this plan together. The fire that comes down, that God that answers by fire, let him be God. Well, Elijah cooked that one up. And you know what? Somehow he made it so that there was no way that the fire from Baal came down and nothing happened. And he taunted them with words that talk about what they believed. He pointed out that their truth was an error and a lie with his truth. And so how vicious was he to do that? How awful. That he made them belittled and feel bad because everything they'd taught the people and lived was a lie. Evil hates that. And they will call good evil. That's what they do. That's what evil does. And so we find him continue to talk. And he says, you know, can you believe it that somehow that fire came down? And, it, and, and what this plan was of Elijah, it just, you know, Jehovah did that. But Elijah stood there before the people. And the people said, the Lord, he is God. They listened to Elijah. So Jezebel is just fuming with all this. And then you know what Elijah did? He executed the prophets. All of the people you've been training, he executed them with a the sword. They're gone. It's kind of a scary thing that maybe there's going to be a revival take place. There are people that have been converted because of Elijah, because of that one guy. Notice verse 2. What does Jezebel do? She sent a messenger to Elijah. I think this is really fascinating because, number one, she should have said, hey, Elijah, come up here and visit with me. And the moment he walked into the palace, captured him. But instead, no, she, she displayed her hand and she said, I'm going to get you. Tomorrow you're going to be... And she began to take her godless thinking and display it. She, in her paganism, called out a curse upon herself from her gods and said the, that their God should do more to her if she doesn't kill him by this time tomorrow. Sort of like 24 hours and you got to get out of town. 24 hours, you're dead. you got 24 hours to think about this. And, instead, and so in God's plan, God gave Elijah time. On the other hand, she sends this messenger and says, your life is forfeit. You are done. The threatenings that would just tear at the soul come at Elijah. I, I believe the next thing we see in verse 3 is this. When he saw that, saw what? The messenger? Or saw all of these events. He is alone. He has nothing changing here in Jezreel. There is rain, so that threat is removed. There is Jezebel, who is an awful, evil woman, and she does not repent. And he sees Ahab, the king. He does not repent. He sees the lack of effect and service for God here. Believers, is that not sometimes what drives you and I to fear? Because we're not sure God's doing enough. God didn't finish this. What's also interesting, too, is that Elijah has been subjected to seeing God in small things, doing things. The non-spectacular. The little bit of meal. The little bit of oil. God has done the simple things. And also, God has said, flee at times. God has said, go. He sent him to Cherith, out of the land. There are times when God does tell his people, flee for your lives. 
the book of Matthew, the Lord tells that to the believing Jews. He says, when you see this and this happen, don't even go back into your house for your overcoat. Run for the hills. So there are times to run. It's not that he sinned in running. There are times to stand pat, to stay put, to stand firm. But the key to it all is, did God say to stand firm or did God say to run? And Elijah doesn't take the time to find out. We get a clue as to what was going through his mind as we take ourselves down through the, the this, uh, subsequent context. Verse 4, he hit, he, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. It is not a fear of death that makes him run. He's still a man here, folks. He is a strong-hearted man, a great-hearted man. He's not afraid to die. There's something else cooking, and that goes back to the word saw. There's something else going on in his mind, and that's really where it boils down for us sometimes, too. You're not afraid of death, though you may be. We're all afraid of how it will take place. We all know it's in our future, because nobody gets out of this world alive, they say. Our Savior is the one who never failed. So we know that the Lord could have stood this, but Elijah was subject to like passions as we. So there's a lesson here for us. What are we going to find? It's not afraid to die. It's the very thing he, he prays for in verse 4. So what is it? Verse 5, then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there was by his head was a cake baked on the coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank, and he went on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in the place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Notice the same similar statement in verse 14. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Elijah saw something that caused him to flee, and what he saw shows you his heart. There was a matter of pride that began to display itself. There was a matter of significance that began to display itself. There was a matter of what we find in his words that begins to be the three eyes that we need to be aware of in our lives as well. Three eyes. Number one is a statement of his own significance. Verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. I, there's an I, his own significance. You know, it's interesting. Remember what we learned about Obadiah? Obadiah wasn't afraid of dying either. But what Obadiah was doing back in chapter 18 
was Obadiah says, you know, if you are not here, Elijah, when I go to tell Ahab I've found you, then I die, and then what happens to all the prophets I've been taking care of? Like, God can't take care of them if he chooses, Obadiah, for your life to be forfeit. There was a statement of his own significance. Elijah heard that and said, I'll be here. Elijah faced it in others. And he was faithful, even as he faced Obadiah, this brave individual. And yet, Elijah falls prey to the same thing. I. The first I is his own significance. How easy is it to fall from the pedestal? when we feel like we're the significant one. And Christians, when you're faithful, when you're standing alone for God and you put on the armor of the Lord each day and you go to do battle for spiritual things at work or at home or in your neighborhood or wherever you are, you're going to feel like you're significant because you're the only one. But don't get lost in your own significance. Because the Bible tells us that God will strengthen your faith when you humble yourself before him. Humility disappears like a vapor. It disappears like the morning fog just because the sun of our own self-righteousness rises. Believers, we have got to learn to be afraid of a sense of our own significance. We're supposed to disappear. The Lord is supposed to have the preeminence. So we find him saying that, I, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And you know what? I alone am left. If I'm not here, if I, if I stayed there in Jezreel, and Jezebel wants to destroy me, Lord, who are you going to use then? I'm all by myself. I'm the only voice. If I fail and falter, Lord, who's going to defend your name? So it's not just significance, but there's a focus on service. That happens. You know, we, it's hard to keep balance in life. There are men in ministry who lose their families because they focused on their service. And that's a, that's a hard, hard thing. That happened to Samuel. It happens to others around us. We become focused on our own significance or we become so focused on our service that we lose sight of the one we're serving. His strength, his power, his authority. We didn't humble ourselves. The final thing I think that is just what else he saw is this. And they seek to take my life. There's the idea of a lack of results. There is no repentance in Jezebel, certainly none in Ahab that I could see. There's a lack of results. Where is the spectacular? Believers, the Christian life is lived by steps. Sometimes God is pleased to do spectacular things. Praise the Lord for that. What an encouragement. What a shock, uh, shot to the arm. What, a, what a, uh, an encouragement to, give you, to enliven your steps when he does something really big. But more often than not, God does things in little small increments, using little small people, using little small events. And believers, that's where we come in, because there's not a giant here among us at all. We're all small in the sight of God. So it's those little tiny things that God uses, and what a blessing that is. But don't get lost in thinking God's not doing something because there was nothing big happened this week. God will do big things when it pleases him. But more often than not, it's the mundane things. It's the majority of life's service that takes place in the quiet 
in the small, in the steady, in the obedient steps. And we have to remember that. It's little steps of obedience. Lord, if I die, who's going to stand for you? Lord, there is no repentance. It's got to start from the top down. All that we worked upon is now gone. She's just going to start finding more prophets. Lord, what was the result? What's the purpose in all of this? I think it's fascinating to see what Elijah saw so that we can also learn what God has to share with us. That lack of results, those three eyes, will kill off any service for Christ in our lives. We cannot go there. Instead, the Bible says we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord so that He might lift you up. Faith strengthened. I think sometimes we get the idea that the Christian life is just all about faith, and if you just have enough faith and you work that up and you just build that thing up within you, then, and it seems to be all up to you, then God will do some miraculous and mighty things, but we don't see those miraculous and mighty things, and we sit back and say, well, guess it's because I didn't have enough faith. What does Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 tell you? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now, yes, there's faith that's saving faith, which is talked about there. There's body of belief, which is the faith of the Word of God, what you learn in the Scriptures. That's still not of yourselves. And then there's living faith, a life of faith. Believers, that's still not of yourselves. Help thou my unbelief comes to mind in the Word. God does a sovereign thing in building your faith. Now, you might feel pretty helpless about that because you'd like to make your faith strong. And so you say, okay, today I'm going to be really full of faith. It's not about you. You can't make that happen. But it is a sovereign thing that God will help you be full of faith in his time and in his place. But you are to live a life of faith, which is faith, hope, and love, right? Elijah lost all three. He lost his faith of what God was doing and trusting him. He lost his love of the people and what God was going to accomplish, that this is a big God to love who's bigger than Jezebel. And he lost his hope because it looked like God hadn't done a big thing. But we're called to a life of faith, hope, and love. That's got to be a work of God in your heart. If you have the cart before the horse and say, why aren't I more full of faith? If you can't see a sin in your life or you can't find something that is robbing you of a strong faith because of your disobedience, then what you need to do is go to the Lord and say, Lord, strengthen my faith because that's his gift. It's what God does. It's his blessing. It's what God brings about. You cannot manufacture faith. It just isn't within us. We're sinners saved by grace. That takes a humble heart. What robs us of that humility is the adulation of men. What robs us of that humility is that self-desire for self-respect and self-confidence. And I ought to be like everybody else. Now, Elijah was just like you and me. We all stand in the same circumstance. I, was, um, I want to share with you one paragraph out of A.W. Pink's book that relates to this concept of faith and share with you this, um, what he has to share Oh, what a need we have to cry, Lord, increase our faith. 
For we are only strong and safe while exercising faith in God. If he be forgotten and his presence with us be not realized at the time when great dangers menace us, then we are certain to act in a manner unworthy of our Christian profession. It is by faith we stand, 2 Corinthians 1.24. As it is through faith, we are kept by the power of God unto salvation, 1 Peter 1.5. If we truly set the Lord before us and contemplate Him as being at our right hand, nothing will move us. None can make us afraid. We may bid defiance to the most powerful and malignant. Yet, as another has said, but where is the faith that never staggers through unbelief, the hand that never hangs down, the knee that never trembles, the heart that never faints. Nevertheless, the fault is ours. The blame is ours. Though it lies not in our power to strengthen faith or call it into exercise, we may weaken it and can hinder its operations. After saying, Thou standest by faith, the apostle at once added, Be not high-minded, but fear. Romans 11.20 Be distrustful of self, for it is pride and self-sufficiency which stifle the breathings of faith. That's powerful. It's the Word of God that will build faith. It's that which gives you faith. It's that which the Holy Spirit uses to plant within you, but you can't make it grow all by yourself. Rest upon your Lord have done with the three eyes of Elijah and recognize that sometimes God does call you to flee, but make sure he calls you. Other times he says, stand. And having done all, stand. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to give you that uh, opportunity to, to spend time in the presence of the Lord, remembering that ma the majority of life's service is in quiet, routine, humble obedience, for that's God's will. Speak to him about where your soul is today. Father, I thank you that we can see in the life of Elijah lessons for our own personal heart. Father, I, we see his vision of what was taking place around him and his evaluation of it and that which drove him into the wilderness. We will see in the future your humble um, or your kind caring, your gentleness with him. And Father, what a comfort all of that is, for we often run ahead of you. We forget that it was by your hand that we have arrived where we are. And when we run and flee because of what we see, we have forgotten to live a life based upon faith and trust and waiting upon our God. And Lord, help us to be mindful of that. Each one of us in our own lives has ways that your spirit can apply this. And I pray that you will do that today. Humble us, that we might find our faith strengthened, that we might find it grow, because you are a good God, a sovereign God who will not let us go. Father, help us to not become confident in our strengths. Those strengths indeed are of you in the first place. Without you, a message that a preacher preaches is useless. Without you, a, a witness at work is youth, useless. Without you, a marriage that has been committed to one another in the sight of God is useless on eternal scales. Father, I pray that you will work in our hearts. 
encourage us to be obedient, to not look for the big things, except when you do bring something big, rejoice in you, but rejoice with fear and trembling because you are a great God, not to be trivialized. Evil does exist. It is a horrible adversary. I pray, Father, that you'll make us strong in you for your grace, for your purposes, that we might honor and live for you with all the days you've given. In Jesus' name, amen.